0: Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, context of what we read last week. We're going to start in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, and by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time... has blinded his eyes. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would be at work in us as we consider and examine your word, that your spirit would examine us. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the churches through your apostle John in this epistle he wrote to the early church. Father, we pray that we would understand that your word is breathed out by you, that what we're reading here is not the words of man, but the words of God ultimately. It's as if you've rendered the heavens and you are directly speaking to us in your word and it has authority and sufficiency and clarity and it's necessary for us. And we pray that as we consider it, you would turn on the lights in our dark minds and you would give us understanding. You would cause repentance in our hearts that you would save those who are not saved and you would bring us that are saved, those who know you, into a greater understanding of you, a greater relationship with you. You would be honored in our lives. Cause us to love in the way your son is loved, in the way you have loved pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week I said I was going to start a series of heart checks, if you will, from 1 John. A series of tests of true faith from 1 John. We've been walking through this letter, and I wanted to point you to these, as John does. I think he gives several tests, particularly in chapter 2, but even beyond that, of true faith. And the reason that we are doing this is because John wants us to know And be certain that we are Christians. It's why when he starts off in chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin... But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. But how do I know that Jesus is the propitiation or wrath bearer for my sin? How do I know that Jesus is the advocate, the one who comes alongside of me? How do I know that Jesus is mine and I am his? How do I know I know him? And John is laying out these tests. He's saying, listen, there are false teachers all out there in the world, and these false teachers who have come out of the church and out there are trying to confuse you. They're teaching you about a false Jesus and the problem is, when you don't have the Jesus the apostles have, then you don't have the father the apostles have, and you don't have an right understanding of man the apostles have. You don't have a right understanding of sin that the apostles have. You don't have a right understanding of salvation that the apostles have. You don't have a right understanding of the Christian life that the apostles have. And then what happens to you in that is you're so confused and your theology is so messed up that you constantly lack a joyful assurance or confidence in your salvation in the one who came to save you. And so I want you to know that you know him. And so I'm giving you tests to know that you know him. He wants us to know that we know Jesus and are united to him by faith. And he gives us tests of true faith. And there are several tests here. Um, I broke them down following really a, a famous pastor who's now died, a British theologian named John Stott, who talks about the moral test. Are you keeping the law? The social test. Are you loving your brother? And then the doctrinal test. Do you believe the right things about who God says he is, about who Jesus has revealed God to be? Those three tests. Last week I talked about the first one, or the moral test, as a vertical test i.e., do I love God? And how do I know if I love God? I know I know Jesus if I love God, so how do I know if I love God? Well, it isn't generic. I know if I love God based on whether or not I keep his commandments. If I have an ongoing, growing pattern of delighting in God's word, delighting in God's law, and wanting to obey him, then that's a sign that I know Jesus, This gives us not a sense of doubt, but a sense of confidence and assurance. For those who are exceedingly introspective, I'm sure some of you are in here, right? You're really introspective and you're always recognizing all that's wrong with you. Anybody in here like that? I'm glad I don't have that problem. (laughs) Yeah. I want to caution those of us who tend to be exceedingly introspective. I, I, I really don't have that condition to the degree that some friends do by the grace of God. But I want to caution you that the, paths, that the purpose of these tests that John is giving <coughs> sorry, are not to cause you end, to endlessly navel gaze and doubt your salvation. That's not what they're for. They're not for you to go home and just constantly introspect on who you are. They are tests that are given to you to examine yourself, to extrospect, if you will, to ask the question, am I looking to Jesus? Because Jesus saves me, not me. they are tests that cause me to ask, am I looking to him? And they give me a joyful assurance then that Christ is mine and I am his. And in an era when there are so many competing voices preaching a different Jesus, John wanted The first century church to know and trust the Jesus whom the apostles knew and trusted. And by the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, in God's wisdom, God breathed out this word through John so that we would know the Jesus whom the apostles knew and trusted. So that we would be able to silence the competing voices with regard to Jesus, with regard to God, with regard to what he wants from us. And the Holy Spirit has done this great work for us. And so today we're going to apply a heart check, if you will, a second heart check. Last week I said we were looking at a moral test or a vertical heart check. Today we're looking at a a social test, really more of a horizontal heart check. What does your love for your brothers look like? Are you loving your brother? Is your heart rightly directed toward your brother? And as we look at really God's command to love your brother, I want to establish two truths regarding this command. Okay? Here they are. The command to love your brother is not a new command. That's the first point. And I'm going to explain that in a minute. The command to love your brother is not a new command. You hear that? It's the first point, I want to establish the truth regarding loving your neighbor on this test. Here's the second part The command to love your brother is a new command. Are you losing your mind? No. I'll try to explain that to you. So the first point, the command to love your brother is not a new command. The second point, the command to love your brother is a new command. Well, what is it? I'm not suffering from schizophrenia. This is right in the text. I'm going to help you. Okay, look at verse 1. The command to love is old. Look at, sorry, verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7. Forgive me. The command to love is old. Look at there. Beloved. I am writing to you, writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. That, that phrase... An old command that you had from the beginning is, as I said at the beginning of John 1, it's that, that Greek phrase "op arche" from the beginning. That word "arche" is what we see in John 1:1. 1, 1. In the beginning, in arche, ain't Alagos. In the beginning was the word, and now we have in John, First 1 John 1:1, that which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. In the beginning was Jesus, and in the beginning was an old command from the time God created us he gave us a command and this command he's writing about is the command to love one another that existed from the beginning God has always loved us do you know that why because he is love it's what first john and chapter 4 And verse 8 tells us, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In other words, to ever have known God, you must love because God is love. And that's been true from the beginning. From the time he created Adam and Eve, they must love because God is love. That is who he is in his character. God is and always has been love. Now there's content to that I'm going to talk about. I I remember watching... um, Touched by an angel, back in the '90s. Anybody else watch that? I know it sounds terrible. I um, I had bad theology at one point in my life, and I watched Touched by an Angel, and I and I I will admit now I liked it. Um, don't hold it against me. It was the '90s. <clears throat> but I remember the angel played by Roma Downey. Yeah, I, I remember her name. Right. And I remember a scene when she told a person, they were talking about why did God create us. And and some of you, did anybody else watch that show? Am I the only one guilty of that stupidity? Okay, good. Some others have joined me in it. All right, good. I remember the angel telling a person uh, when they are saying, why did God create us? The angel says, well, he created us because he was lonely and he needed us. Because he was lonely and he needed us. And I remember being taken aback by that statement because I thought to myself, I'm pretty sure that's just blatant blasphemy. Now I I picked that up even as a regular watcher of Touched by an Angel. <laughs> and, and listen, God did not create us so he could experience love. He was not eternally lonely. He was eternally in a loving, joyful, self-giving relationship between the Trinitarian members of the Godhead, the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. This means he did not need to create to somehow complete himself. He isn't the other half on the Jerry Maguire movie. You complete me. He didn't look down at Adam and say, you complete me. He was complete already. He was not lonely without us. He did not need us. He is not improved by us. When we talk about glorifying God, we don't mean improving him. We mean reflecting the truth about him. Pleasing him and reflecting the truth about him. We're not adding to him. God has no need. He is not a needy God who created people selfishly for the purpose of finally having someone to make himself feel better. God has no need. So, why did He create? Why did He create Adam and Eve? Because He is self giving by nature. Do you know what a self giving, all loving God does? As He says, I want to create creatures just so they have the privilege in sharing in my love and glory for their sake. I don't need them. I'm going to create them and give them, out of love for them, the privilege of sharing in my glory. Thus he created us to share his glory and to share his joy. He created us out of the overflow of his love. He is self-giving by nature. And I say all this because I want to emphasize that the command to love is not new to Christians because it is inseparable from who God is. God is love. He always was, he always is, he always will be love. Thus God's people, as his image bearer, those, those who bear his image or reflect his, the truth about him back to him, we have always been expected to love. In fact, God commanded his people in the Old Testament to love God and to love their neighbor, didn't he? Thus the command to love is not a new commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, is not a new commandment. That was true in the Old Testament. So it's not a new commandment, but let's look at verse 8, because it is a new commandment. So here's the second part. The command to love is new. Verse 8. At the same time, notice that phrase, at the same time, it is a new commandment. That I am writing to you. What is it, John? Is it an old commandment or a new commandment? Yes. It is a new commandment I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. So now John says the commandment is new. So what does he mean that it's new? In what sense is it new? Because we have to ask, what he's saying is, in one sense, this commandment isn't new, but in another sense, it is new. It's like buying, um, this is a really bad analogy, so don't let it go any further than it needs to, okay? It's like buying a used car. It's new to you, but it isn't new. So there's one sense in which it is new, and there's one sense in which it isn't new. Don't take that used car analogy any further than that. So in what sense is it new? There are at least two important aspects, at least two important aspects in which the command is new. Here's the first one. It is new in the sense that it finds deeper ethical meaning in Jesus. It's new in the sense that it finds a deeper ethical meaning in Jesus. What do I mean by that? It's new in the sense that Jesus says it is in John 13, 34. Keep your hand there in 1 John 2 and look over at the Gospel of John and chapter 13. Because Jesus references this new commandment. And look at verse 34. John chapter 13 and verse 34. A new commandment I give to you. What's the new commandment? That you love one another. Now now catch this. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So you're not just... To love one another with all, or to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's a newness to this command, to this old command. Now it's being ratcheted up. You're to love one another as Jesus loved you. Now, what's he talking about? How did he love us? What's this new deeper understanding in Jesus of love? How did he love us? Chapter 15 and verse 12. John chapter 15 and verse 12. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. And how is that? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So how has Jesus loved us? How has he ratcheted up? It's new in the sense that Jesus loved us by laying down his life for his friends. See, so far the command of the Old Testament hasn't been ratcheted to the point where you're supposed to lay down your life for other people. In that sense, you love them more than yourself. It's in this new sense that Jesus loved by laying down his life for his friends. Now look at 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10 because this is defined after God is love and we'll come back to this passage obviously. And this is love. Not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Here in his love, not that we loved God. We didn't do something to love God that caused him to respond and love to us. We didn't love him first. He loved us first. He loved us and he sent his son to be a wrath bearer, a satisfaction to go to the cross for our sins, to lay down his life for us. That's love. Showing kindness to others at great cost to self. In fact, showing kindness to others at total cost to self. Brothers, notice what he does in verse 11, Or beloved. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. How? Like this. And laying down our life for people as Jesus did. But I do not want you to only understand this command to love as being new new in the sense of a deeper moral command, if you will. Because John is not only saying that God's old command to love. He is not only saying that God's old command to love has been made new by the fact that Jesus, if you will, ratcheted up the stakes on the whole thing. I would say that's included, but I think he's saying something even more profound. And, And that's really the second thing I'm getting at here. And love. And, and that's that it's new. Love is new in the sense that it's already, here, here's the second way it's new. It's new in the sense that it's already fulfilled in Jesus and in you. This command to love is new in the sense that it's already fulfilled in Jesus and in you. Now That's, that's a strong statement. Where do I get that from? Look at 1 John 2.8 again. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. Now notice this phrase, which is true in him and in you. This new commandment I'm writing to you is true in him and in you. What does that mean? What does it mean? It's true in him and in you. John is saying that this is a new commandment in the sense that it is true in Jesus. In other words, what he's saying is that Jesus has kept this command to love. Jesus loved as God loves. Jesus loved the Lord as God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. He loved to the point of laying down his life for others on the cross. Jesus did that. Jesus fulfilled the command that Adam failed to keep, that Israel failed to keep, that we failed to keep. This command is new in the sense not only that it's ratcheted up because you laid down your life for others like Jesus did, but it's new in the sense that it's finally been kept. In Jesus. He kept it in our place. But it's also new, and there's, there's really more here, John says, because he says it's not only true in him, but it's true where? In you. Well, what does that mean that it's true in us? Jesus, I want to take this so that. Jesus is now resurrected. Jesus has now ascended to the right hand of the Father and he dwells in us by the Spirit. Thus this command to love is true in him because he kept it fully and it's true in us because the Holy Spirit has united us to him through faith. So that what's true of our Messiah, of our head, is true of his people, of his body. And this means that I have been Declared to be just, declared to be righteous, and I'm legally credited with the love with which he loved. Jesus' love is counted to me. In Christ, through faith in him, I am declared to be someone who loved as Jesus loved. I I just want you to stop and let that sit on you for a second. Through faith in Christ, you are declared to be someone who loved as Jesus loved. I've also been made new by the Spirit of Christ, and I'm empowered to love as Jesus loved. In other words, he is pointing us to the fact that the kind of love which was once impossible for us apart from Jesus is now in us because of Jesus. This, it, what John's getting at here is, is an eschatological statement. You're going to say, what in the world does that word mean? eschaton means last things, and if you will, the eschatology is the study of the last things. And usually when we think about the study of the last things, we all start getting freaked out about, is this guy the geopolitical antichrist of the future, right? And is it Obama or is it Hillary? (laughs) Which one? It's got to be one of the two of them, right? We all get into these kinds of discussions, and we take out our newspapers and line it up against the Bible, and we make a huge mess. But when I'm talking about the fact that it's an eschatological statement, I'm saying something a little bit bigger than that. Whenever you read a book, you start at the beginning, right? And you start to read the story, and you realize this story is leading somewhere. It's leading to a conclusion, to an end. So it has a direction from the beginning to the end. And so when I say it's an eschatological statement, I'm saying it's a story that's leading to an end, to a fulfillment Jesus has stepped in in a moment of salvation history and accomplished something that was never true before that moment. See, God created Adam and Eve in the garden to live in his place or in his presence under his rule and blessing as his people. He created them for that, to love one another even as he is love. And Adam and Eve sinned and failed to fulfill that command. And so God cursed all mankind. But he made a promise that there was one coming. There was one coming who would succeed where Adam and Eve had failed. One who would be the final Adam. The second Adam, if you will. One who would come and do perfectly what Adam failed to. One who would come and do perfectly what Israel failed to. One who would come and do perfectly what we failed to. And that one came and his name was Jesus. And we're, what's he doing? Jesus coming to do what? Take us back to the garden. Take us back to being God's people, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. But what's amazing is when we get to the end of Revelation, we find out that we're back in the garden, and it's so much better than the garden was. So much better. It can never be lost again. It's an eternal resurrection and glory with Christ. That can never be taken from us. The second Adam is so much superior to the first Adam. And what John is doing here is he's saying, I want to tell you, I'm giving you a statement about our place in God's story of salvation. He's saying that a new age has dawned in human history. That the law keeper has finally come. That the one who loves as God loves has finally come. He's arrived and because he's arrived and he loved well in your place, that is not only now true in him, but it's true in those of you who are his people who are united to him by faith. You were united to Adam in a fall and sin like his and united to Christ in a resurrection and a life like his. John is saying that a new age has dawned in human history. God's command to love as he loves has been kept by Jesus and is now able to be kept by us. See, as Adam, as those fallen in Adam, we walked in darkness, didn't we? As those fallen in Adam, we are naturally selfish. Our hearts are, as Luther has said, curved in on themselves. We could never love in a self-giving way as God does because we're not in the light as God is. We're in darkness in and of ourselves. But in Christ, a new day is dawned. A new age of the Spirit of God has been ushered in. We are now those who are in the light and thus can love as he loved. Look, look at the last part of John 2.8 just to confirm this. I'm writing this to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining See, thus if we're in Christ, we're born again. We're in the light as he is in the light and our hearts have been changed. We now love the brothers as he does. Our hearts are now capable of loving as God loves, not out of selfish motives, but out of self-giving motives. I can love my kids in such a way that when they disobey, I don't have to face the fact that I'm going to just go or come completely undone in defeat completely distraught that they have not loved me back the way i loved them that they have not shown me the the kindness and respect that i showed them but i can continue to love them rather than turn against them because i never loved them that way for my sake in the first place i love them that way for their sake same thing is true with my spouse We sit around and demand our rights with our spouse. I'll do what's right, and I'll love you once you do what's right and you love me. Listen, that's fine for the old self-centered man who only loves when others love him. But it is not okay in Christ. Christ loved when we did everything to oppose him, everything he hates. When we put him on a cross and killed him, he still loved us. He gave himself for us. And we, brothers, are also to love one another in the same way. And that's possible in Christ. It's true of us in Christ if we trust him. And he has not only made it true of us legally, but he's making it true of us experientially as he has changed our hearts and given us new life and given us the ability to love in that way. 1 John 2, 9-11 through 11 makes this clear. Look at verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. See, you can say you're a Christian all day long. But if you hate your brother, you're not in the light, you're in darkness. Your Christianity is a sham. It's a sham. And by love your brother, I don't mean love them when they do what you want. Love them when they ring the bell the way you want them to, by showing up when you want them to show up, by doing the things you want them to do, by talking to you the way that you want them to talk to you. I mean love them when it's hard. Love them when they're doing everything to oppose you. Love them when they're showing you contempt and hatred. That's what he's talking about. That's what loving your brother is. Any kind of love when they're doing what you want is love for yourself. See, what Jesus says, you know what? You love those who love you, so what? The pagans do that. Everybody loves the people who benefit them. Everybody does. Big deal. Try loving the people who don't benefit you. Try loving the people who oppose you, who revile you, who speak all kinds of things falsely against your name, who sin against you. Try loving them. See, that's how Jesus loved. And Jesus says, if you don't start loving like that, if you don't have any of that kind of love in your life, then you can talk all day long about the fact that you're a Christian in the light, but you're a liar. You're in the darkness. It's not true of you. Because if you're in the light, then Jesus has been united to you through faith, and his spirit's at work in you, and he's making you like himself. And if you're not seeing that transformation in your heart, then whatever you call your faith, it's a sham if you call it Christianity. Christianity. Whoever loves his brother, verse 10, abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. You see, he's he's not the one out there causing others to stumble or in himself stumbling because he's got the light in front of him. You know what happens you're walking down a path on a dark night? If you don't have a light, what happens? You trip into sin, in this case, if you will. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is your horizontal heart check. Do you love your brothers? Has your heart turned out to them? And here, by your brothers, he's largely referencing the church, believers. Do you love other believers? Do you really love them? If you say you're in the light, but you hate your brothers, you're still in the darkness. If you love your brothers, then you're in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in you. Isn't that similar, if you will, to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians five fourteen and 15, when he says, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, what? That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, why? So that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, Christ came to save you from self-love, not to encourage it in you. He didn't come to bring up your, to bring up your self-esteem. He came to crush it. To cause you to stop looking at yourself and start looking to him and others. We've been saved from selfishness to self-giving. We seek the benefit of others at great expense to ourselves. And I want to emphasize this. Love has moral content. When I say love, 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 my concern is what you might be hearing because of the cultural interpretation of that word. Or definition of that word. What do we mean by love? We live in an age where love seems to be merely a kind of approval of whatever makes others happy, right? But the Bible does not define this way, love this way. Love has ethical content in the Bible. Love is not selfish. It seeks the good of others at cost to itself. Love is directed toward the brothers, first the church, so that Paul can say, do good to all and especially those of the household of God. Love gives its life for others, its comfort for others, its energies for others, its reputation for others. And our love is not only for our brothers, but for our enemies. If we're in Christ, then we bless those who curse us. When others revile our name and speak all kinds of evil falsely against us, how do we respond? By blessing their name. By building them up. Is that what happens when people gossip about you? And you hear about it, do you turn and say, well, let me tell you why I thank God for this person. We pray for those who persecute us. We sacrifice for the good of others. Love expresses itself tangibly. We care for the needs of our brothers. We'll get to that in 1 John 3. Love seeks reconciliation, even at cost to self. Love avoids Sitting against others and the way we treat them or speak about them or think about them. It's constantly on its guard against that. Love speaks the truth for the good of others. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love, love overcomes the fear of man, where I don't have to tell you what you want to hear so you'll like me, but I can tell you what you need to hear because I care about you more than I care about you liking me. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist, listen, it does not insist on its own way. You insist on your own way in your marriage? With your friends? That's not love. You can say, oh, I love my family. I'm committed to my family. But they have to do it my way. It's not love. It's not irritable. Love is not irritable or resentful. It re- does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love doesn't say, "Look at, my enemy just fell. I have great joy in the fact that he fell." Love doesn't do that. It doesn't kick the man when he's down. Love rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Here's a test of your faith. Do you love that way? See, if you're in Christ, if you know him and love him and unite him by faith, then you're in the light as he is in the light, and you love others and you do good to them, particularly your fellow believers. You've been saved from the kingdom of darkness, and you've been brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. And You will give your life, your money, your time, your blood to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So the question is, how did you do on the horizontal heart check on the heart check of the way you love your brother? Well, if you're anything like me, and I'm sure you are because you're human beings, you might think, well, I'm not sure I'm a Christian anymore. After all that, so there's, there's, no way, there's no way that I love like this all the time. Well, let me point out one final and important detail in this text because it's incredibly important. Look at verse 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Now notice the way this is phrased, because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. In other words, John is saying that while the new age has dawned and that it's already true in Jesus and in us, it's also not yet true in us. Because the darkness is still passing away. The darkness isn't quite gone. The new day or new age or the light is now dawning. But it isn't quite the full sun yet. The new covenant age, this era of redemptive history that we've been saved into has begun, but it has not yet been consummated because Jesus has not yet returned. John's point is not that all believers are are without any sin in the way they love others. That's not his point. He's not saying, well, once you are in Christ, you are sinless in regard to your love for people. What he is saying is that somehow, somehow, The darkness is beginning to pass away, and the light is beginning to shine. He's not saying that we've reached sinless perfection. He's saying the darkness is passing away, but it's not completely gone yet. So this will be a major struggle for us. Loving one another the way we should will be a major struggle for us. But what John is saying is that a major heart change has happened. Our hearts have dramatically shifted. The shadowy darkness of our sinful and selfish hearts is being chased out by the light of God's self-giving love in Christ. Where we would walk away from a relationship in which we were harmed or look away from a brother in need or curse someone who cursed us or quickly write off people who did not give in to our demands or see all relationships in light of how others are are contributing to us. Where we would have done that, now we have new hearts. Change has happened. We understand and desire, those struggle with, we understand and desire that we need to be long-suffering in painful relationships. We are self-giving. I'll do anything to love you properly, no matter what it costs me. I will lay down myself for you, my demands for you, my insistence that I'm right for you. That's happening in my heart. That's what he's saying. That's begun in your heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. He's not saying it's been perfected in your heart. It will one day be perfected in your heart, but it's begun, and you can sense it. You want to bless the name of others. Sometimes you're sitting there and you hear it and you want to curse them and you realize this is wrong. I need to repent of the fact that I started to do that and begin to bless them instead. We want to believe the the best about our brothers rather than assuming the worst. We want to pursue others whether they are ever going to reciprocate or not. In other words, we're becoming like Jesus. We're not this way perfectly, but the new day is dawned. And while we will only, I admit, we will only make small beginnings in holiness and in self-giving love in this life, we are making beginnings because Christ's light has shined in our minds and hearts and given us new life. See, this is the sovereign and gracious work of the God who is light and love. So he says in Second Corinthians chapter four and verse six, "For God who said, "Let light shine out of darkness." That's speaking about the creation has shown in our hearts the new creation to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Grace does not stop at bringing you legal forgiveness of sins and declaration of righteousness. Grace breaks the power of sin in your life and begins to remake you in the image of God's son, Jesus. So grace is a lot more powerful than just forgiveness. Don't diminish grace. Don't demean it. As if all it is is some cheap thing that every time you sin, you can appeal to for forgiveness. Grace is so much better than that because it breaks you from slavery to sin. It redeems you and gives you the ability by the Spirit to begin to walk as Jesus walked. Begins to remake you, grace does, in the image of Jesus. The question is, do you know him? Has the light of God's Son dawned on your heart? Are you trusting in Jesus? If not, turn to him today. Ask God to open your blinded eyes to see the light of the good news of the glory of Christ. He will. Beg him to give you eyes to see and ears to hear. To trust him. What about What about those of you who are believers? How are you faring on these heart checks? Is your assurance of salvation shaken by the condition of your heart? The condition of your lives? If so, I beg you to repent. Get on your face and ask Jesus to forgive you and to cause you to walk in his light. Ask God to drive home the reality of his love for you and saving you so that you might love others rightly as he loved you. Ask him to get a hold of verses like 1 John 3, 1. A verse we could probably spend a whole Sunday on, but I only gave Jason a bunch of other verses around it. Save a whole Sunday just for this verse. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Ask God to drive home to you The reality of 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us and gave his son as a wrath bearer for our sins. I don't know if you heard that. God did not love you because you first changed and did the right thing to earn his love. He loved you in Christ because he is love. This is what the cross sings out to you. The cross sings out to you that you are unworthy of God's love in and of yourselves. On your own, you are not lovable. But God is love. And God has sent his, or set his love on you in his son because that's who he is. God does not love those people who first love him and show him kindness. Kindness. God loves them while they're still his enemies and opposed to everything he is. Isn't that what Paul says when he says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, opposed to him, while we're still sinners, doing everything he hates, while we're still sinners, not showing him any kindness, not showing him any love, not demonstrating any faith toward him, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Now that you have the great grace and privilege of being loved like that, go and do likewise.